Maybe when we're drinking again, we should discuss this. Yeah, because right now it doesn't even sound all that interesting to me. But if we had a few <laughs> shots in us, we may be like, yeah, man, time, <laughs> time. <laughs> time for another shot. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. My name is Dana Smith. And as always, I'm joined by Mr. I-don't-give-a-schmitter about the alternative factor, Dan Calzaretta. Hey, Dan. <laughs> well, that's quite the nickname. <laughs> yeah, I hated that episode, Dana. Well, there's a lot of people that uh, felt the same way as you. <laughs> my, my notes for tonight start with, holy cow, a lot of people hate this show. <laughs> Not this show, but the alternative factor show. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people agreed with Dan and his total hate for the alternative factor. Some people still defended it as good science fiction due mostly to the concept of the alternative universe. Yeah, not a good enough reason to like that episode. <laughs> and a great many people commented, as I did, about uh, Lazarus's beard constantly changing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. One of our readers said that that was, uh, we could do a whole podcast just based on that. So. <laughs> well, you know, we've made a lot out of little in the past, Dana. <laughs> in fact, that could be the tagline of this, uh, you know, podcast, Damn It, Jim, the podcast. We make a lot out of a little. <laughs> we make a lot out of nothing sometimes. So uh... <laughs> That's true. You know, the funny thing about last week, we didn't bring up the ramble jar once. And there were a few rambles in there. It all seems so focused on the show, but the monkeys yeah. movie, that was mm -hmm. a ramble. Yeah, that one deserved quite a bit of <laughs> ramble jar money, I think. All right. Well, before we get too far into uh, this uh, very popular episode, I do want to thank everybody who uh, on Facebook who uh, commented on the podcast, uh, Lorena, Martin, David, Paul. Casey, Keith, Alice, Zoom, who comments on all of our podcasts. Thank you, Zoom. Robert, Lynn, Don, Mario, Olivia, who bailed on the show and just listened to our podcast because she thought our podcast would be more entertaining. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I can't argue with her there. Sue, Claudio, Mary, Bert, Belinda, and Steve. And Dan, that's just mentioning a few. We had yeah. a lot of comments on this show. Do you have uh, any comments from our YouTube followers? J.D. Lewis wrote about the alternative factor. He said, congratulations, you have accomplished the impossible. Your podcast took the single worst Star Trek episode ever, and your remarks made it incredibly entertaining. Keep up the great work. Thanks, J.D. Julie, yeah. also writing about the alternative factor, said, this episode is so boring, I could barely watch it, but you are interesting and as amusing as ever. Thank you, Julie. Yeah. And then uh, finally, John Ulikowski, writing about Shore Leave, uh, wrote that you guys forgot to mention Ruth, Kirk's love interest. Love the podcast. Thanks for doing it. John, yeah, we did leave out Ruth. Sometimes we just have to leave stuff on the cutting room floor. And Ruth was one of those pieces we just had to cut out. So thanks, John, for that. One of the emails we received was from Randall. He said, I was very entertained by Dan losing his Schmitter over this horrible episode, <laughs> uh, referred, referring to the alternative factor. You're becoming a hero just based on this episode, Dan. So Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. We didn't use a Schmitter joke 
in all of last week's episode, which thinking back on it really surprises me because that was <laughs> one gigantic stinking pile of Schmidt. I had uh, two or three people that I know all asked why we didn't uh, mention Schmitter in this episode. I did tell them we got Uranus in. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's true. We did. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we dive in, Dan? I think we should. And I think actually we are going to go from, as I mentioned last week, worst to first, Dana. I'm excited to talk about this episode. What is this episode, you ask? It's season one, episode 28, The City on the Edge of Forever. Love the title. Yeah, it's a great title. So we start off with uh, the Enterprise in orbit around an unexplored planet. The Enterprise is on red alert as it passes through time distortions that are surrounding the planet. As the ship plots its orbit, uh, Scotty warns that the control circuits are threatening to overload, and no sooner does Kirk acknowledge that report and the helm console on the bridge explodes and Sulu is injured. They call for medical help and McCoy comes up on the bridge. They're uh, talking about whether or not they should break orbit to avoid these pulses that they're experiencing, but Spock advises against it and says the ship is literally passing through ripples in time. It is of great scientific importance that they remain and investigate. I love this concept of ripples in time. And time travel is one of my favorite types of science fiction. When they talk about these ripples in time, I was like, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be pretty cool. Kirk orders Uhura to broadcast the Starfleet past week's log entries detailing the unusual readings on the instruments that has diverted the Enterprise to this planet. And interestingly, Dana, we never hear a star date in this episode, in, in the entire episode. Wow. I might have to go back and take a look at that. Yeah, in the beginning, does not give a star date. And then later in the episode, for reasons that will become obvious, says there is no star date. I, I didn't even think about that as I watched it. So McCoy comes to the bridge and he diagnoses Sulu with a heart flutter and he prepares a hypo of cordrazine. Kirk says that's kind of tricky stuff. You were about to make a medical comment, Jim. Who, me, Doctor? Sulu kind of wakes up and seems refreshed and smiling. And then uh, just then Scott reports that the Enterprise is nearly clear of the time ripples. And Spock confirms with uh, one heavy displacement directly ahead. The Enterprise shudders as it collides with this time ripple. And McCoy is messing around with the hypo and he falls into it and basically injects himself with it. They emptied the whole contents into his basically his belly. He falls down. Kirk and Spock rush to his aid and McCoy Koi comes up and he's like screaming. Killers! Assassins! I won't let you! I'll kill you first! I won't let you! You won't get me! Murderers! Killers! Breaks free of Spock and runs to the turbo lift and gets on. And Kirk orders a security alert and attempt to find McCoy. And his face is like very pale, but has red splotches on it. And he's sweating. He looks yeah. crazed. It was kind of strange when he injects himself and falls over. There's a stuntman who does the fall. And then even when he's getting up onto his knees, when they're trying to help him up, it's still a stuntman. Oh, I didn't, I didn't notice that. The guy had like much shorter hair than McCoy. Hmm. It was kind of funny. I was like, you know, DeForest Kelly was a veteran actor at this point. He'd been in Westerns and stuff. And I thought he couldn't handle falling on the carpet. I mean, it's just... <laughs> yeah, you know, why would they do that? I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> Is it some kind of union rule or something? Kirk and Spock are talking and 
Kirk says something about the Cordrazine, and Spock says uh, could lead to paranoia and fits of sudden rage. He says he could be extremely dangerous to himself or anyone who comes in contact with him. Captain's log, Kirk explains what has happened to McCoy and says they have no idea what the medication will ultimately do to McCoy. Is it temporary madness or is it permanent? We see McCoy come into the transporter room. He subdues the transporter crewman with a karate chop to the back and then a quick one to the neck that barely connects. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's the thought that was there. And then he sets the transporter. A child could apparently operate the transporter. <laughs> Last week, Lazarus did it. Yeah. Never been on a starship before, but knew how to operate the transporter. McCoy had never seen him operate the transporter before, but he knows how to set it, even in his crazed state. The funny thing is, you would think the transporter would not be automatic, or it would be automatic all the time, where you wouldn't even need a transporter operator. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe that it's locked locked out when the transporter operator's not in contact with it or something. Something, yeah. A little safety thing. Yeah. I mean, it'd be easy to do. Security calls and says McCoy knocked out the transporter chief and beamed down to the planet. Spock tells Kirk that at that time, when McCoy beamed down, they were focused on the center of the time disturbance. Kirk orders the landing party and they rush off the bridge. Well, hold on a second. Do you think Cordrazine, do you think it was Jägermeister inside of that <laughs> hypo? It wasn't green. Is Jägermeister green? No, the bottle's green. So. Yeah, I don't know what color Jägermeister is. I haven't opened it yet. It just makes you feel green. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get sued by those guys. So, Or they'll become a sponsor, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a commercial for Jägermeister the other day. Did you really? Yeah, I've never seen a, a commercial. I've seen ads like, you know, in a magazine. Yeah. The commercial, did anyone puke at the end of it or? <laughs> it all showed them smiling. I think it was before they did the Jägermeister. So it was a... <laughs> because how you describe the Cordrazine is, you know, paranoia and uh, fits of rage and doing harm to yourself and other sounds. Again, I haven't had, haven't had Cordrazine or Jägermeister, but from what you tell me, that sounds like a normal after effect. More of the self-harm because you want to kill yourself for doing it. Oh, my yeah, God. <laughs> I've or heard... the bartender who served it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard over and over from many people the same story. So I don't know why we're even considering doing Jaeger shots with our friends, but... It's a science experiment. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm doing this for the greater good of humankind. <laughs> so then we can report on the podcast and say either, yeah, it wasn't that bad or, yeah, don't. Don't even... <laughs> McCoy's injected himself with the Jägermeister slash a deer blood, <laughs> and he's gone. So Kirk, Spock, Uhura, uh, Scotty, and two security guards come down to this planet, and they see there's like ruins. Spock comments that they are uh, the ruins are centuries old. In fact, he says ten thousand centuries. Yeah, which is a million and years. I, I I actually did the math on my calculator. Oh, good. Well, calculator app, not not an actual calculator. <laughs> But the ruins look like ancient Roman architecture. Yeah, Rome or Greece, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the old pillars and stuff, yeah. you know. I liked it. I liked that set. It's one of my favorite sets of all of any episode of Star Trek. I, 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 Yeah, I really like that set. So in the middle of all this is this big rock formation type thing with a hole in it. And uh -huh. everybody kind of walks around it. It's got a huge hole. <laughs> but they're not on Uranus. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> It's a smoky hole though, right? I mean, it's, uh... <laughs> yeah, from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what you ate, you know, before. <laughs> Could have been some very spicy meal. I don't know what planet that would be. Can you imagine something coming through a hole that size? <laughs> <laughs> 
I would imagine a whale would have a hole that size. I mean, like a like a huge blue whale or sperm whale or something. I mean, I would imagine they're, you know, I mean, we can say it, they're anus. That's a technical term, scientific term. I imagine that thing's huge. I saw something on PBS. They were following whales and this guy pointed out in the water that there was whale poop. Uh-huh. It was like long strings. So it wasn't like huge, gigantic whale turds. It was more... No, it looked like seaweed or something stretched out. Could you yeah. see it coming out? No. I was at the Shed Aquarium one time. The what aquarium? Watched... The, which? which? <laughs> the Shed Aquarium. Oh, Shed. Okay, Shed. Okay. <laughs> In Chicago. Yeah, it's a good aquarium. I like that aquarium. Yeah. And uh, did see uh, a dolphin poop. Wow. What was that like? Was it stringy or was it turdy? It was just like a long, cloudy thing. Did it sink or did it float? <laughs> it's a good thing you're going to have a week to edit this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of just floated and dispersed. Okay. So it was more milky or something. It wasn't like chunky. It was, no, it was more like a liquid. Yeah. It was more liquidy. Okay. That's just yeah, interesting. I, I don't know. Everyone's got a poop, Dana. That's just how it is. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> or Schmidt. Everyone's got to take a Schmidt. <laughs> We've successfully brought back the Schmetter. People are listening to the podcast. They just tune in. <laughs> Wait, what? Whale Schmidt? No. Wait, is this Star Trek? What? Well, last week you talked about the movie Head by the Monkeys, right? Yes. And monkeys like to throw their Schmidt, which is <laughs> fascinating true. to me. That's fun to them. Yeah, I know. It's just weird that they would do that. But So. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's, let's move beyond that. So anyways, this there's this big rock and it's got uh, a big hole in the middle of it. Spock says that the source of the time displacement seems to originate from this rock. So Kirk asks Spock to explain, but he says he can't. And he says, for this to do what it does is impossible by any science I understand. And then Kirk asks, what is this? And then the rock speaks. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I am the guardian of forever. I am my own beginning, my own ending. I see no reason for answers to be couched in riddles. I answer as simply as your level of understanding makes possible. And Spock seems a little surprised by this. He seems a little miffed. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like raises an eyebrow like, you know, who do you think you're talking to? Here? Yeah. And then uh, we cut away and we see crew members walking around. They're looking for McCoy and McCoy is hiding from them. Spock says to Kirk that this is a time portal. And the Guardian responds, as correct as possible for you, your science knowledge is obviously primitive. Yeah. And Spock is again taken back and yeah. says, really? Kirk looks at him and says, are you annoyed? <laughs> and, and Spock just gives him a look and then they uh, move on. The Guardian shows them images from their past. Just then, McCoy comes out screaming, killers! And he's held by Scotty and a couple of the, the security guards. And then Spock comes up and gives, gives him the Vulcan nerve pinch. Kirk looks back at the portal and asks if they could use that to take McCoy back to the time before the incident to avoid the hypo accident. And Kirk asks the Guardian if he can adjust his speed of what he's showing them. And the Guardian says he cannot. McCoy wakes up and then he goes running through this portal and disappears. Yeah. Now, I, I have a 
couple of things about this that are a little confusing to me. Uh, when Kirk and Spock are first talking to the Guardian, the Guardian says that he is his own beginning and his own ending. And yet when Kirk asks the Guardian, you know, could you slow things down so we can take McCoy back through? The Guardian says, I was made to offer the past in this manner. I cannot change. So is he his own beginning and own end or did someone make him? I'm a huge fan of this episode. Love this episode. But there are a couple of things in this episode that are still like, I think they could have done that a little bit better. So they're all talking about how to get Koi back and Uhura says she lost contact with the Enterprise. So Scotty checks her communicator and says there's nothing wrong with the communicator. The Guardian says, Your vessel, your beginning, all that you knew is gone. Earth's not there. At least not the Earth we know. We're totally alone kind of a concept. Yeah. They're here on this planet. They had a ship overhead that was, you know, the, their lifeline and now there's nothing. I thought that part was great. I really like this part. And I'm assuming that because they're on the planet in the, like, the presence of the Guardian, that's why they're still there. That was the only thing I could figure as well. Yeah, that they're yeah. actually inside of these, like, time waves or something that they're yeah. almost protected from what happened to the rest of the Enterprise. Kirk says that they've asked the Guardian to show them Earth's history again, so they they might be able to spot this point where McCoy changed Earth's history. He says that he and Spock will go back using the tricorder to try to determine the exact moment that McCoy disappeared. And Kirk asks if we are successful. And the Guardian then says, all things will be returned as you know it. You heard and Scotty say that this is a attempt is not likely to work. And Spock says, we have no alternative. And so Kirk tells the crew that if they fail or they don't return, then each one of them is to go through the portal. And at least this will give them a chance to survive. Because, I mean, obviously, stay on the planet's really not an option. I didn't see like crops or, you know, bears walking around or anything that you could eat. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Or could eat you. you know, so. Yeah, there were no convenience stores or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Again, a really cool concept. Like, well, you know, just go ahead and jump through time somewhere. At least you'll be somewhere. Yeah, if it's the history of man, I, I would wait till the 23rd century. But of course, you don't know what's going to be like at that point because time's changed. Yeah, but what if you what if you could jump through before the accident, McCoy goes through the portal and you stop him from doing that? Wouldn't that be the smarter thing to do instead of going and trying to find him? But if everything's changed, that world that created that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. I'm going to cut this out so I don't look stupid. <laughs> See, that's a good part about editing. I can make myself look not, well, not that I could get rid of all the stupidity, Dana, but I could make myself at least look a little less stupid. Yeah. I, you should try that for me sometime, but then you'd probably have to cut all of it out. So. <laughs> Kirk and Spock jump through the portal and they land in 1930s USA. People passing by are obviously dressed differently than they are. It's obvious they kind of stand out, not to mention that Spock, as he says, I will not blend in easily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they're trying to figure out what to do and they run across the street. Spock almost gets hit by a car. It's funny because he stops and the car is like honking at him. It's like, get out of the road, you moron or whatever. And uh, and Kirk has to go back and pull him along. And Spock actually says, because I, I, I heard something. So I stopped it and went back a little bit and Spock almost gets hit and he says, fascinating. <laughs> They see 
clothes hanging from a uh, fire escape. Kirk decides that it's best to be walking around in the clothes of the day instead of their mm-hmm. Starfleet uniforms. Mm-hmm. It's funny because Spock says, theft, Captain? And Kirk says, we'll steal from the rich and give to the poor later. We, this is what we need right now. We'll, we'll correct everything later. Right. They get all these clothes and they're walking out of this alley and a policeman finds them. Yeah, this uh, I, Dana, this part is one of my favorite parts of any Star Trek episode is this interaction. Really? Yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. The officer's got a billy club behind his back and he's talking to them and Kirk's trying to talk his way out of it and he knows that the cop is looking at Spock and he says, he goes, oh, you're looking at my friend. My friend is obviously Chinese. I see you've noticed the ears. They're actually easy to explain. Perhaps the unfortunate accident I had as a child. The unfortunate accident he had as a child. He caught his head in a mechanical rice picker. I had to stop. I had to stop what I was watching there. So then the cop has had enough because it's obvious they're just, you know, making crap up. And he orders them up against the wall. Kirk points to the cop's shoulder and says, it's terrible. Your wife let you go out like that. And Spock turns and says, yes, quite untidy. And he points to the left shoulder and then he does the Vulcan nerve pinch on the right. It Mm -hmm. was just classic. Yeah, very good scene. Love that scene. So Kirk and Spock gather the clothes and they take off running. They duck down an alley. And that's when I realized this is Mayberry. Uh, and they go into a basement. Basement looks kind of deserted. Well, hold on. Can and, we talk about the Mayberry thing for a second? Sure. Yeah. So this is the set used by the Andy Griffith show, right? So it's downtown Mayberry. Floyd's Barbershop. We're going to see this later in the episode as well. It still is painted and says Floyd's Barbershop. Oh, I missed that. So they get dressed in normal clothes uh, for the time period. And they realize they might not be a spot where McCoy will come through. Spock says that time could be fluid like a river. They might be swept up by the currents into the same time and place as McCoy. Yeah, because Kirk is really like, how do we even know? In fact, he says something like, how do we know he's not going to show up in outer Mongolia? And Yeah, he's like, he could be in San Diego or he names off all these cities. He goes, outer Mongolia for that. Mongolia, right? Yeah, Mongolia. Outer Mongolia. Not Mongolia. Mongolia (laughs) Mongolia is near Womongolia, but um, (laughs) Mongolia is near China. (laughs) A stupid joke. See, if I'd been drinking, that would have been hilarious. Yeah. To me. <laughs> to nobody else. <laughs> but this is what I like about this episode. Unlike last week's, where they over-explain everything, and it still didn't make any sense, here in a couple of sentences, Kirk and Spock, and the, the writers of the show are able to explain what probably most people are thinking is how in the heck are they going to end up in the same place in the same time? And they explain it in a way that not only makes sense, but you're like, that sounds plausible to me. And I like that about it. They didn't try to over explain it. Remember last week, what were they were in the... Um, oh, the conference room for like a week. Yeah, yeah in the conference room. Yeah. <laughs> and they just kept repeating themselves over and over again. Yeah, and it still didn't make any sense. And so that's what I like about this episode. I think the writing was uh, really good in it. Spock kind of laments the f- not being able to hook the tricorder up to the ship's computers. If only I could tie this tricorder in with the ship's computers for just a few moments. Couldn't you build some form of computer aid here? In this zinc-plated, vacuum-tubed culture. Yes, well, it would pose an extremely complex problem in logic, Mr. Spock. Excuse me. I sometimes expect too much of you. 
And so uh, you could see that Spock becomes very uh, determined to make this work. Just then a voice calls down the basement. It's a woman's voice. And Spock runs and puts a knit cap on. A woman comes down the steps and asks who they are. Kirk explains they didn't mean to trespass, but they were being chased by the police. After a few seconds of uncertainty, she says uh, she could use some help. Kirk and Spock agree to help her out. And then Spock asks, what about the rate of pay? (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of a surprise to me. And obviously, it was a surprise to Kirk, too, because right. he looks at him yeah. uh, in a strange way. And he says, uh, the vacuum tubes, my hobby. And they introduce themselves. And then uh, she introduces herself as Edith Keeler. And she says, well, you can start by cleaning up down here. He asks where they're at. And she says, you're in the 21st Street Mission. And Kirk asks if she runs the place. And she says, Indeed, I do. But you can see right away, Kirk has stalactite going for her. So. <laughs> yeah, stalactite <laughs> making its return. <laughs> uh, next, we see Kirk and Spock in a food line. Edith Keeler comes in, and the guy sitting next to Kirk says, You'll be sorry. And then he explains, uh, You're not going to get anything for free around here. You have to listen to her. And then he starts to say, Well, if she really wanted to help a guy, and Kirk says, Shut up. <laughs> and the guy starts to say something again, and the Kirk just says, shut up. And Spock's kind of give him an eye and Kurt says, I want to hear what she has to say. Edith gets up on the stage. She says she's not a do-gooder and she asks that if you're not able to stay off the booze or stay out of trouble, then get out. And she goes on to say that there are future days worth living for. And she believes that one day soon, man will be able to harness the power of the atom, which could ultimately propel them into outer space, where they will be able to find ways to feed hungry millions of the world, cure their diseases, and give mankind hope in a common future. Kirk is impressed by her foresight, while Spock believes it's intuition. Kirk replies that he finds her most uncommon. So later in their room, Spock is working to make the quote-unquote computer, and Kirk comes in with groceries. Um, We find out it's been a few days since they've been there, and Spock tells Kirk that he needs platinum. Mr. Spock, this bag does not contain platinum, silver, or gold, nor is it likely to in the near future. Captain, you're asking me to work with equipment which is hardly very far ahead of stone knives and bearskins. This is a line, another one of these classic lines that I always remember, Dana. Back in the room, Spock gets the tricorder and the quote-unquote computer to work, and he sees a paper headline that says, Social Worker Killed, and it's Edith Keeler. Spock says, I think we may have hit upon the reason we are here. And Spock gets an image on the tricorder that is six years ahead of the date that they're at. And it's another article in a paper. It says, FDR and Edith Keeler conferred, and it's got tough to read what it all says. And then uh, the system shorts out. Kirk is like kind of all excited. He's like, well, we know what Edith Keeler's future is. And then Spock says he saw another article from 1930. And Kirk is going on and says, she'll be famous in six years. And Spock says, or she'll die this year. Spock tells him that he saw her obituary, some sort of traffic accident. And then Kirk seems confused. And he says, there must be some mistake. They can't both be right. And Spock says, I think Edith Keeler is the focal point in time we have been looking for. Kirk asks about McCoy, and Spock says he is the random element. You must stop him, Jim. Spock, I believe I'm in love with Edith Keeler. Jim, Edith Keeler must die. Yeah, I love this 
whole part, Dana, again, in a very short amount of dialogue, they get to the real heart of the matter. And it's the huge dilemma that they are both facing here. I just, yeah. I just loved it. I, I thought this was brilliant, brilliant writing. Next thing we see is a street scene. There's a uh, milk truck and a uh, milkman is delivering milk. He's uh, walking down alley, drop off milk, and there's a bum kind of standing there on the side of the street uh, watching. When the truck drives away, the bum goes and grabs one of the quarts of milk and he's standing there getting ready to open it when McCoy comes basically through a building across the street. Yeah, so. and he kind of appears almost out of a wall, just like Kirk and Spock did at the beginning, yeah. near the beginning of the episode. Of course, McCoy stops in the middle of the street and is yelling, murderers, assassins. He sees the bum and he's like, where am I? What planet is this? And the bum drops the milk and McCoy goes chasing after him. And he checks the man over and he like grabs the man's legs and he says, biped. And he takes the man's head off and he puts his hand on the man's on his head says good cranium development is that how you fake all this and then all of a sudden he just like passes out and the bum checks him over takes the small phaser that he has and he walks aside and he's checking the phaser and you get kind of a close up and you see him pushing one of the buttons sounds like the phaser is going into overload mm -hmm. and then the phaser basically overloads and the man is vaporized or as we like to say here schmitterized yeah, so. <laughs> he was <laughs> yeah he just kind of glows blue and then disappears. We see McCoy wandering the streets. He sees the mission and he goes there. Inside, McCoy goes up to the counter and asks for coffee. Edith sees him and says, uh, are you okay? You need help? And she comes around and he almost passes out. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she's like, you poor man. And she takes him to a cot in the back room. Spock comes in carrying coffee and he just misses seeing McCoy. That was really well choreographed. I thought that scene where, uh, and it looked very natural. Yeah, it did. Back in the room, Spock is showing Kirk details on the tricorder. He says there was a growing pacifist movement that delayed the U.S. from getting into the war. During this time, Germany was able to expand their weapons and heavy water experiments. We see images of the Nazis on the tricorder, and then he says... Germany won the Second World War. And Spock says all this because of the delay that let them build the A-bomb first. The idea here, Dana, is that Edith Keeler convinces FDR, the president at the time, not to enter the war until it's too late. So the next thing we see is McCoy waking up on a cot in uh, this back room, and Edith is kind of watching him. Uh, McCoy says, uh, looking at her, either I'm unconscious or demented. And he looks around and guesses uh, the time would be about 1925, and she says it's 1930. And she says, I have a friend who talks just like you do. She says, would you like to meet him? And McCoy says, I'm a surgeon not a psychiatrist. Put a big exclamation point next to that. I was so excited. Yeah, so. that was good. I, I I forgot that he gives one of those lines in this episode. So I was happy too. Yeah. So McCoy sits up a little bit and says, I am Leonard McCoy, senior medical officer on the USS Enterprise. And she says, well, that's kind of hard to believe. She says, you're not even dressed in a naval uniform. And he says, that's all right. I don't really believe in you either. Coy is still convinced he's having a delusion. And she says she, she can't stay. She's going to a Clark Gable movie with her young man. And McCoy looks at her kind of befuddled. And she says, don't you know what a movie is? And he goes, well, I know what a movie is. So he's basically saying he doesn't know who Clark Gable is. Right. Uh, next thing we see is Edith and Kirk walking across the street, a car almost hits them both. She is saying that if they hurry, they can catch the Clark Gable 
movie, Kirk's like, I don't know who that is. And she says, oh, Dr. McCoy said the same thing. And Kirk stops when they get across the street and says, Leonard McCoy? And she says, yes, yes. Do you know him? And he yells for Spock. And he says, stay here. And he goes running across the street. And Spock comes out just when Kirk's about to tell him McCoy comes out of the mission. Mm -hmm. And they all like, you know, hug one another. They're all excited. And then she starts walking towards him kind of like in a daze. We see a truck coming. She's uh, keeps walking and then Kirk sees her and sees the truck and he starts towards the street and Spock yells, Captain, no. And so he stops, continues to watch. And then McCoy comes up and he grabs McCoy and keeps McCoy from interceding. Then Edith gets hit by the truck. Because McCoy was going to jump out and save her, right? Yeah. Kirk like grabs McCoy. He's like buries his head on his shoulder and you can just see, I mean, you know, you could really feel what Chatner was feeling at this time or what the character was feeling. At this time. And he, he even could, he couldn't even watch, like he couldn't even look out in the street to see what yeah. had happened. He was kind of, like you said, burying his head in McCoy's shoulder. McCoy says, Deliberately stop me, Jim. I could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? He knows, Doctor. He knows. Some of the best lines in all of Star Trek, I think. You know, again, the way Spock delivers it, the emotion of the scene, it's not overacted. Really well done. So the next thing we see is Kirk and Spock coming through the portal. And uh, Scotty says, what happened? You only just left. And then McCoy follows through a moment later. Spock says the mission was successful. The Guardian says the timeline has been returned to normal. He then goes on to start talking like a freaking advertisement. (laughs) Say many such journeys are possible. Let me be your gateway. Just $99.95 and I can take you to the time zone of your choice. (laughs) And you can fuck up for all of mankind. <laughs> Why did he have to go into that? Yeah. Uhura reports that the Enterprise is back. Everybody's kind of mowing around and Kirk says, Let's get the hell out of here. So Dana, actually, just- I think this is the best line in any Star Trek episode in the entire original series. It's not the usual ending. Yeah, sometimes they're kind of light. There's some banter, some joking. Not in this one. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant episode, I think, in almost every regard. Like you said earlier, nothing is perfect. There's no perfect Star Trek episode. I'd say this is as close as it gets. Okay, Dan, do you have uh, themes and dilemmas you want to discuss for this episode? Well, you brought up a big one. Kirk has to decide, you know, whether he gives up this relationship with a woman he clearly loves in order to put the past back in order, or does he do what is important to him and follow his heart and just decide that the rest of it is not important to him? My thought was how important is an an individual in the fabric of time? An episode like this really brings up a question for me. It's not so much a dilemma. It's more of a question, and that is, what is time? Like, define it. Could you define time? I know that people listening to us are probably defining it as like, this is long. (laughs) (laughs) It's time that they stop. I know that. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. But but I mean, what is it? Like, how do you define time? It's almost impossible. when we're drinking again, we should discuss this. Yeah, because right now it doesn't even sound all that interesting to me. But if we had a few <laughs> shots in us, we may be like, yeah, man, time, <laughs> time. <laughs> time for another shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So Dana, what was one of your best parts of this episode? It's a good story. It's well-conceived and it's well-executed. I agree with everything you just said. Yep, absolutely. How about you? I thought DeForest Kelly in this episode was fantastic. So I think he goes from, you know, playing a normal person to this crazed madman. I just thought he was really good in this episode. Are there good parts for you? The ending. It's a solid ending. Makes you think. I thought it was really well done. Anything else for you? Yeah, I'd say one last thing. I thought the writing was excellent in this episode. I really did. It was tight. It made sense. It didn't ramble, unlike me every (laughs) time we do this podcast, but it was really, really well done. How about a worst part for you, Dan? Unlike last week's episode, the worst part of this episode is when it ended. I would have loved to have seen like a two-parter on this one. I think they easily could have expanded it into two episodes. It would have been pretty cool. I thought there was enough going on in there that they could have easily been a two-part episode. Mm -hmm. What about you? Anything else that you didn't like? Uh, The one thing that really bothered me was the the Guardian's final comments, you know, just sounded like a carnival ride, just kind of diminished what it was. It's it's all kind of, it seems nitpicky to me. Yeah. I really like this episode and I don't want to come across as, you know, pointing out stupid stuff. The stupid stuff didn't matter. You're right. Absolutely right. I mean, in the grand scheme of this episode. <laughs> So Dana, you mentioned the writing of this episode. And there were some conflicts about that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this was written by Harlan Ellison. Ellison won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation for this episode. He's also known for a lot of short stories. One of his stories was an Outer Limits episode a couple of years before this episode of Star Trek called The Demon with the Glass Hand. And he also wrote a classic kind of a cult film now. It's uh, called A Boy and His oh, Dog. Oh, yeah. Have you ever yeah, seen that? Yeah, a long time ago. But yep. During the writing of this, he had a very different idea. It wasn't going to be McCoy that caused the problem. It was another person on the ship was selling drugs on the on the ship. Right. Roddenberry said, no, 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 that's not the future I created mm-hmm. here. Nobody's going to be selling drugs on the Enterprise. And just think that would have changed how we all view Star Trek. Yeah. They brought in other writers, including DC Fontana. Mm-hmm. They said there was like five or six other writers. I was reading about Ellison too. And I knew a little bit about Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison was, how would you put it? He was a crotchety, angry man. He was not a happy human. When he won the Hugo Award, he gave a speech, you know, at the Hugo Awards and he was pissed, man. He was angry. (laughs) And this is his quote. He said at the Hugos that he dedicated the award to quote, the memory of the script they butchered and in respect to those parts (laughs) of it that had the vitality to shine through the evisceration. (laughs) And you can see a couple of videos. If you go on YouTube and just look up Harlan Ellison, you're going to see a few. But at another Hugo Awards, he got called up on the stage. And I don't know what the whole context was other than he knew the woman who was on stage. I think her name was Connie Willis. I believe she was a science fiction writer as well. He comes up and she knew him and she knew that he was kind of a crotchety old guy. And she says, are you going to be a good boy? And then he grabs her breast. It was like horrific. He was just an odd, odd dude. Just an odd dude. So, Dana, what happened on this day in history when the show was broadcast? The show originally aired on April 6, 1967. You're going to love this, Dan. Uh, the number one song in America was Happy Together by the Turtles. That's uh, two weeks. And the number one song in the UK. Uh oh. I'm afraid. Five weeks running. No. Engelbert Humperdinck's. Release me. Jesus. Release me from that song. <laughs> it's also the number one song next week. Oh. <laughs> it, it stayed on the charts, the number one spot in the UK for six weeks. Wow. Okay. So, so we got that to look forward to. Yeah. I think some point we're going to have to play that song on here. 
Also on uh, April 6th, Bill Baird, an advocate for reform of restrictions against birth control, was arrested in front of 2,500 people at the auditorium at Boston University. Shortly after announcing that he would challenge the Massachusetts state law, Baird handed a can of spermicidal foam and a condom to a 19-year-old student and was taken off stage by Boston police who charged him with providing contraceptives to a minor and illegally exhibiting an obscene object. <laughs> Wait, was there something else he had or was that was that the yeah, object? Yeah. That's just it. And then he would fight his conviction all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which would on March 22nd, 1972, reverse the lower court in the case of Eisenstadt first Baird. And you know what? We're going backwards, Dana. There are people that want to ban contraception now. Some of those people are a good reason for contraception. <laughs> so it's a... Yeah, that's right. Also on April 6th, the largest ransom in United States history at the time was $250,000 paid by the president of a bank in Beverly Hills, California for the safe release of his 11-year-old son. A few days short of three years later, Ronald Lee Miller, an investigator for the Internal Revenue Service, would be indicted for the crime. After his conviction, Miller would be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. Wow. None of the ransom money could ever be found. Was the kid alive, though? Apparently. The kid was alive. Oh, okay. And he went home and his dad said, you better be worth that $250,000. <laughs> I'm going to get $250,000 out of you one way or another. Yep, <laughs> Go cut <so>. that grass. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be mowing the lawn until you're 90. Yeah, so. That's the exciting stuff. Well, that was good. All right. So, Dan, speaking of exciting stuff, do you want to move on to the yeah, counts? Yeah, let's, let's move on to the counts because I think we're going to have a little discussion during some of this. How about the dead crewman count, Dana? Sad to say there were none. No, nope. So, we're at 26.5. The shirtless Kirk ripped shirt Kirk count. I was sure we were going to see Kirk without his shirt on at some point in this show. He had his 1930s clothes kind of unbuttoned a little bit, but not shirtless. Yeah, yeah, I was a little disappointed there too. So we are at nine. The he's dead count. Nobody died. Well, nobody died from the Enterprise. Yeah, the, the guy in the alley died when he zapped himself with the phaser. Did they make him an honor, honorary crewman? No, no, no. See, he doesn't count. So <laughs> uh, we are uh, stuck at three. I'm a doctor, not a fill in the blank. Yep, we got one. I'm a doctor, not a psychiatrist. Yep, yep, that's what. Not, he, not one of the best ones, but it was a. It's a good yeah, one. yeah. It was good. It counts. So we had one this week. We now have a total of three. What about the supreme being count? You know, I kind of tossed this around uh, because uh, the guardian, mm -hmm. like you said, he said he was the beginning and the end. Seemed kind of supremeish to me until he did the carnival ride <laughs> thing at the end. Uh, <laughs> so is that is that going to eliminate for you? Are you eliminating the possibility then that he's a supreme being because he came up with the little commercial at the end for the travel agency he wanted to start? <laughs> yeah. Guardian Travel Agency. I, you can trust the Guardian. <laughs> yeah. You tell me. What do you think? Dude? I think he's a supreme being. I, I really, I mean, for all the things that you mentioned. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. If that's the case, Dana, we got one this week for a total of six. Now, last week we were going to do a review and see about the violation of the Prime Directive. Did you do your homework? Boy, this is just like being in high school. Uh... <laughs> no. All right. Let's not talk about it this week. 
So, Dana, what do we have for next week? Dan, it's the last show from Star Trek, the original series, season one, Operation Annihilate. Once again, Dana, I had a great time talking about this episode. Great episode. Great to share it with you. Have a good rest of your week. Always fun to talk to you about these episodes. As always, live long and prosper. Thanks once again for listening to Damn It Jim, the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com or join the discussion on Facebook or Twitter. Make sure to join Dan and Dana next week for Operation Annihilate. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week and remember to live long and prosper. Prosper.